Good day and welcome everybody to another episode or installment of Reset Salon Podcast. This is Ed McGuire and I'm here with Julie Albright and Brian Hayashi. Today we have a, a very special guest who's been uh, one of our favorite people in our uh, in our salons, Dr. Laura Baker, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Southern California. We're going to dive into today's theme, which is wellness, uh, inside and out. So this is something that's important to all of us. We want to make sure that we do take care of, of ourselves and, and, and the wellness around us. So, uh, so we're going to explore a few different uh, dimensions or angles or facets of this, uh, of this topic in this conversation. And as, as we always enjoy doing, we'd like to hear first from Julie Albright. Thanks, Ed. I'm bored. My friend suddenly texted me about halfway through what I thought was quite an intriguing Zoom seminar on the empathetic possibilities of technologies like augmented reality and virtual reality. He asked how I was, and then he followed with, I'm bored. Maybe I should take this conversation outside and go for a walk with the dog. Pictures of the dog soon followed and pictures of prior walks and sunsets. Quite beautiful to be sure, but they were pulling my focus away from the main speakers. I closed the webpage that had opened, filled with the sunsets of another day and focused back on the talk. But his comment gnawed at me, I'm bored. What does it mean to be bored? Lately, as I've been working on my next book, I've thought a lot about New York and Paris, two cities that I wrote a lot of it in. Cities like New York are known for their energy. Some people go there to be caught up and carried away amidst a sea of people, like a school of fish who somehow become bigger than each individual fish in the school. They move in unison, react to perturbations of one or another. Cities sometimes feel that way. You can be surrounded by others, yet can retain some semblance of anonymity in the crowd. Fed by the excitement, the energy of a city like New York, the city that never sleeps. Yet the sidewalks have grown quieter now amidst this COVID moment. Many New Yorkers have fled the cities, as have Parisians, and those from LA, San Francisco, and other cities, many to literally greener pastures. Yet as we've explored before, what have they lost and what have they found? I know I can speak for Ed and myself at least that we love to frequent live music from jazz to classical to rock in venues ranging from the local dive bar to the Whiskey A-Go-Go on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood to Carnegie Hall. We'd love to go meet up for a drink and a great conversation ourselves and our other compadres near and far. Brian Hayashi and I are known for a comical post-TED Talk color announcing of the TED Talk after party in Boulder, Colorado. These are the ways we entertain ourselves, punctuating the myriad of meetings, flights, conferences, gym nights, and everything else in between. I can say that life as we knew it skidded to a halt sometime around March last year for a two week flatten the curve period. And suddenly it's 2021. 
Now, we're just, as they would say in academia, an N of three, a decidedly small sample size for sure, me, Ed, and Brian. Yet I'm sure that our experiences, judging from our weekly conversations in our private salon with folks from all walks of life, we're not the odd men out here. Rather, I think our experiences, however the nuanced differences may be or manifest, be it bowling night or cigar rooms or gym time or whatever it have, it have you, or maybe drinks at 21, whatever it is, the particulars may be of what we do. The fact is, for most modern city dwellers, life seems to be characterized by being busy with absorbing, reacting to a constant stream of digital media, alerts, posts, texts, videos, maybe even games, and the occasional phone call. Busy has become our middle name. We work too much, play too little. My European friends like to say, you in America, you live to work there, and we work to live. So strip away this veneer of busy, and what are we left with? We're left with ourselves. And for those who have grown accustomed to covering up all the doubts and fears and worries and insecurities and pain we might feel with busy, being alone with oneself can be an uncomfortable feeling. I'm bored, we might say, when we get too great a glimpse of ourselves and maybe we're not quite settled with what we see. So some people content themselves instead with busying themselves to death. I've had two dear friends, both men, both relatively young, 152, 143, who both worked like maniacs. They both complained of an inordinate amount of stress as well. Yet when I begged each one of them to take a break, take a vacation, even change jobs, both demurred, made excuses, the practice, my best friend and mentor at the time said, 52-year-old Dr. Thomas Conran had been seeing high stakes, high pressure divorce cases in his private psychology practice. But the daily anger and threats of lawsuits from furious soon-to-be ex-spouses was wearing on him. Take a break, I said. Come out here to LA. We'll go up to the mountains. We'll go hiking. We'll go see that new cathedral downtown. I implored him. The practice was his answer. A few months later, he'd fall over dead in front of those very clients, a victim of too much busy and too much stress. My other friend, Will, met a similar fate at 43. So here we are, fast forward in this COVID moment. While much has been lost, and certainly the stress of being ill oneself, losing friends or family members, or losing one's job or home, or other stressors, like having to juggle work and childcare and homeschooling all at once, it's nothing to be dismissive of. But still, in some ways, we've been given a golden opportunity here. This hard reset of our lives has given us this chance that like my friend, Dr. Tom, we may not have realized that we needed. We've been given a chance to spend more time at home with our families. We may not have seen them much before under the veneer of busy. 
but it also gives us a chance to spend time with ourselves. And rather than run away from that moment, perhaps it's time we embrace it. It's a time we can really examine ourselves, where we're at in life, what we've been spending our time, energy, and efforts on. And we can think about how we may want to reorient our lives and priorities going forward. So I would suggest today that we consider moving on a continuum from busy through board to the other side where we're going inward to heal those hurts, right the perceived wrongs within ourselves and set a fresh path forward toward the future, priorities in order, life outlook positive and looking forward. My counseling supervisor, when I had a private practice in Newport Beach, Dr. Jane Drew, she used to say something to me quite frequently to help my clients. She'd say, the only way out is through. So we have the opportunity now to pursue wellness from the inside. And I hope that rather than ruining the day, a reversing course from boredom back to busy, to avoid sitting with ourselves and going through, that we'll do the work to examine ourselves, to heal and to strive to fill the holes inside so we can grow stronger. Perhaps for inspiration, we can look to the ancient Japanese art of kintsugi, the centuries old Japanese art of fixing broken pottery. Rather than rejoin a, a broken bowl, for example, gluing it together with some kind of epoxy adhesive, Kintsugi uses a lacquer laced with gold or silver or platinum to rejoin the pieces, leaving beautiful seams of gold glinting in the broken places. Kintsugi celebrates each piece's unique history by emphasizing its fractures and breaks instead of hiding or disguising them. It can actually make the repaired piece even more beautiful than the original, revitalizing it with a new look and a new life. We're going through our own moment now where our lives have been fractured or broken, yet drawing from Kintsugi, Perhaps this can be a transformative experience, transforming each of us into something much more beautiful when we emerge. If we only find that golden attention and apply it to our broken places. And with that, I'm throwing it over to Brian. Thanks, Julie. Wow. Your, your story about Kintsugi definitely reminded me of uh, the grandparents and some of the thoughts that they would have for the younger me growing up. The idea of Kintsugi is, lies in the essence of, of what things are. And, and I think all of us have some sort of contribution that, that we can make. I think the Western culture had for too long been about this idea of the five-day work week going from 40 hours a week to 50 to 60 in some sort of masochistic battle to see who's capable of, of hurting ourselves the most. And I think you know, the, before the COVID, I think people were starting to realize that maybe that wasn't the end all be all. And so we see today the, the, the rise of coaches and 
all these lifestyle coaches that are out there, and in fact, are one of our favorite applications, Clubhouse, seems to have become quite the 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 uh, the collection of coaches, both past, present, and future. And even before COVID, you you remember you might remember in January there was that. Uh, advertisement that went out for the for the housemaid for the house manager rather the, the 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 wonder person that could do it all to teach their kids how to speak french how how to ski how to swim how to do all these amazing things and and people that saw the ad were wondering how is such a thing possible well i would submit that that going forward that that rather than seeking coaches it, it highlights this opportunity that we have in, in the way that we approach our lives. Rather than try to think about our lives as being some sort of extension of the past, we, 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 we think about what it is that is important to us, our family, and what does it mean to really be there for the family, to be listening and to be present for them in all of the phases of, the, of, of their transition going, going forward. What does it mean to, to be able to be in that state of flow for work where we really understand, where we are in that magical moment of flow or state where we know what, what needs to happen and are, are there when our work demands us to be? I'm really interested to see what the real Dr. Laura has to say about this because I feel like we are in the precipice of really having some really interesting understandings about who we are and what we can do to be the better version of ourselves. So with that, I'm out of here. <laughs> Thank you, Brian and Julie. No, it's, uh, I think you brought up some, you know, some really fascinating uh, threads and, and, and uh, metaphors as well for, you know, for looking at, you know, the physical world and our own, uh, you know, personal world and our personal lives. And, and uh, I think there's, you know, there's there's a lot of a lot to unpack and explore here, which is part of the fun of our conversation, and and would love to uh, turn it over to, uh, to 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 Dr. Laura and and uh, Laura, what what do you, what's on your mind when you when we when we talk about wellness inside and out, and and would love to you know get us get a sense of your of your thinking and uh, and and what what you feel are. are maybe maybe some important some themes uh that are important to you yeah thank you so much for having me it's such a pleasure to be here always to hear uh julie and her fascinating way with words and to see um brian and ed again um so thank you for um, creating the space and uh bringing us together to talk about this important topic um, so as you mentioned, I'm actually a psychology professor. Um, I am at the University of Southern California. I've been teaching and doing research um, in psychology uh, for quite a long time. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things I'll say is that uh, maybe around 15 years ago, um, I stumbled into a yoga class. And I went there because I had a knee injury and someone said, well, you might be able to get some relief if, you know, it, with this, uh, this method called Iyengar yoga. So I went there and, um, and I did get uh, some help. I happened to just um, luckily stumble into uh, the class with an amazing teacher who had just 
incredible um, knowledge in working with people therapeutically. And um, I will also add um, kind of to my background, I was uh, raised in the Catholic church. I went to Catholic school, you know, the whole nine yards, um, K through 12. Actually, I didn't go to K, I didn't go to kindergarten. I went straight to first grade because I was so smart. But, uh, uh, but at some point I left that um, culture, that religion, um, probably in college. That's a story in and of itself. So I kind of was, um, you know, outside of any kind of religious or spiritual um, kind of environment. But when I came to this yoga class, not only did I get some help with my knee, um, I also found a lot of other things there. And I found myself going uh, to class regularly. And I used to joke that now the only thing I did religiously on a Sunday was to go to my teacher's yoga class. <laughs> and I wouldn't miss it. Um, and then I started, uh, for some reason, reading the books. Maybe she mentioned something about, you know, this uh, teacher and that he'd written a book. And um, Mr. Iyengar, BKS Iyengar, had written a book uh, that just came out around that time called Light on Life. And I picked that up and I was just riveted. And um, uh, Mr. Iyengar is so wonderful in his writings at taking all of these ancient teachings in yoga and putting them together in a story that's really a story about his life, but at the same time, it teaches you about this ancient wisdom. So I got really, really um, kind of sucked into that and um, kind of to make a long story short then, I, I mean, at some point I realized, oh, this is actually psychology. <laughs> and I, I've been, you know, doing Western psychology. I, I study uh, individual differences. My field is behavioral genetics. Uh, I'm, I study twins as a way to study how genes and environment um, influence our individual differences. And so it's very grounded. I'm very grounded in empirical science. But then here I was getting really pulled into this ancient kind of Eastern psychology, if you will. And um, eventually just kind of fast forward a number of years and there is this emerging science uh, of yoga and meditation uh, that's really, um, you know, come out in the last 10 to 15 years, um, which is called contemplative neuroscience. And I got sort of turned on to this and I thought, wow, this is it. This is the science of yoga and meditation is kind of a way for me to bridge together my empirical training uh, with this um, ancient wisdom that I was also loving as this embodied practice. Um, not only did I get help with my knee, but it's helped with all kinds of other you know, physical issues, um, but also mental issues. Um, and so I got really involved in learning about the science of yoga and meditation. And um, I thought, how can I incorporate this into my teaching um, and hopefully my research? Um, so I came up with a course, a general education course for freshmen called uh, basically the science of yoga and meditation. And so every fall I teach uh, 15 to 20, um, 18 year olds uh, about meditation and yoga and the brain. And so we look to see how does 
yoga and uh, meditation um, affect our brain? How does our brain get involved in these as well? Um, so, so I found this way to be able to incorporate my love and passion for yoga and meditation into my Western classrooms, if you will. And it's been such an interesting experience to bring that to these 18 year olds. Um, you know, we know that yoga and meditation have become really popular um, in, you know, in the last 20 years, they've really risen. But a lot of the yoga that we've seen is, and I'm particularly focused in yoga, although, you know, yoga is a, a style of meditation, it's an embodied practice. But a lot of the yoga that we see is, you know, uh, more fitness oriented, core power yoga, kind of fitness yoga, flow yoga. Um, and I don't wanna knock those things too much because they certainly have their place. Uh, but a lot of them are kind of missing that spiritual component or people get into them and, you know, they use it as a fitness technique. Um, so what was interesting is to have, it's been interesting to have these young people in my class and they don't even really know what meditation is to start off, they, they kind of hear it, they think it's about relaxation or something. And then I teach them like, and they actually develop a practice and they, they learn to meditate. And they're a little, you know, he hesitant at first, but they, many of them develop a practice. Um, and then along the way, I'm showing them all the research that's showing what this is doing for you. This is actually building your immune system. This is reducing the stress. Uh, in your life. This is actually helping you to become a more resilient, um, you know, well person. And most of the time, by the end of the class, they're pretty convinced. There's still a few that are skeptical. They, they don't really get into it, or they think this is not for me, or they don't really put in the time necessarily. Um, but those that really um, get into it, will often have a practice that they've started that I think will stick with them maybe for the rest of their lives. And even those that don't maybe engage in it right away, I feel like at least I've planted a seed so that they, they know that these things are there and there will become some time in their life when they're really struggling and they may remember, oh, there was this method I learned. Maybe I could check that out now. So maybe it'll come back to them, even if they don't gravitate towards it right away. So that's just kind of a, a little bit about my journey as a psychologist and trying to bring these different ways of understanding the mind um, and our, you know, our, just the way that we uh, think and feel and act. Uh, it's my way of, of trying to um, kind of marry these different um, these different approaches together, um, at least in my teaching. So what's been also interesting is that during the, during this pandemic, you know, as you said, Julie, and your story about <laughs> kind of going from busy to bored um, is, you know, I can <laughs> resonate, that resonates um, so much. You know, we were all just like running uh, like crazy. Um, uh, and by the way, I should have mentioned that along my journey in being interested in yoga, I became a certified Iyengar yoga instructor. Um, so, you know, as they say, the best way to learn something is to teach it. Um, so I took that up as a practice and became a, a teacher um, as well. Um, 
but what was interesting too is that when the pandemic hit and we were all suddenly like stuck at home we were kind of panicking like oh my god like i think i just wanted to dive under my covers and you know pull the covers over my head and say wake me up in two weeks like in two weeks let i'll come out um and then of course here we are as you said it's 2021 uh, but we all kind of panicked and it, and it was also like, how am I going to do my yoga? Like, I can't get to my classes. And um, I, we all quickly got online and figured out how to teach yoga on Zoom. It was amazing how quickly that happened. Um, and I want to say, when did we go in lockdown in California in March? I want to say that by uh, mid to late April, I was in a yoga class with 1500 other people across the US studying with the granddaughter of BKS Iyengar, um, Abhijata Iyengar, taught us yoga from India. So I was like, oh my God, here we, we can actually uh, not only you know, engage in this practice with our teachers, but we can get teachers from all over the world. And we can be in these amazing communities and classes with you know, world-class teachers um but you know be in my bedroom <laughs> um so that's been that's been an interesting observation is how quickly people went from you know busy to to bored to then figuring out how to be able to do the things that were important and essential um to them i remember that very first class when i went to one of my teachers and she was in san diego which i can hardly get to her class but I showed up in her class one day and it was the first kind of online class and there were about 50 of us. And someone said, this is like coming home to the mothership. We all felt connected. We all felt like we were there with one another. And it was even though they were all people on my tiny little screen, we were there together and we were practicing together. And so we felt very much a part of community and very connected. Um, and so, of course, yoga and meditation, if you could Google, you know, uh, for trends, if you Google uh, the trends for yoga classes or online yoga classes or online meditation classes, it's like, you know, they're kind of, they get some hits. And then right about March, April, they zoom up and everybody's like, how can I do this? So people were, I think, all over the place were suddenly found at home with themselves, like literally at home, trying to figure out what to do. And a lot of people took the opportunity to really go inside and say, you know, maybe I'll do a yoga class online or maybe I'll learn to meditate. You know, I haven't had time to do it before. Now I don't have to drive anywhere. So a lot of people have taken this opportunity to really go inside and become acquainted with themselves. You know, it's funny that you talk about boredom too. One of my teachers likes to say, you're bored, you know, you've got this amazing playground that's right inside of you. You know, your body and your mind are your playgrounds. Like go in there and check it out <laughs> and see how things work and observe and, how can you be bored when you have these playgrounds like that you're carrying around with you? So I, I love that concept that, 
you know, we have that, that we, we kind of can go inside and it can be a playground. Now it can be terrifying at times too, which is why we always recommend having a teacher uh, just in case you get inside and you find something that's a little challenging, having a teacher nearby to kind of consult with can be a good idea. Um, but there are a lot of amazing online teachers where people are connecting, you know, both with yoga and meditation. So I don't know, maybe I'll just um, pause there and let you all react to that a little bit. But that's yeah, just I, some of the things on my mind. Yeah, the thing that, uh, you know, make, I, I just it just brought to mind this image of like, going into finding go, going inside in into my own mind and 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 seeing a for rent sign you know <laughs> instead but uh you know i think no i think the the opportunity we've had this really unique opportunity to slow down our you know our external lives in you know in this you know you know in this period and i think what's so interesting what you just there there are a couple of things that jumped out to me one uh, when that you related was the um, physical changes that uh, that occur when you engage in meditation, and you know the the, the true um, you know the uh, I know that there have been studies that measure you know brain waves, particularly uh, monks that engage in years of meditation have just unbelievable abilities to, for instance, slow down their slow down their their heartbeats and and um, you know, essentially, you know, slow down their, their entire metabolism. Um, but also, uh, you know, that I would love to get your, you know, your impressions of, of what the, the meaning, how meaningful it is to be able to go in, into your, be guided to look inside uh, in, you know, an environment that's so exceptional where you have in a sense you this, you know, this, this, the shared pandemic um, and all of the uncertainty uh, you know, the stress, the, um, uh, I would say kind of the, the mass mental illness that, <laughs> that's, a, that surrounds us. And, and, you know, I, so those are just a, a, a couple of things we'd love to get your, get your thoughts on apologies for the multi-part question. That's a, um, but anyway, I'll just turn it, turn it back to you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so one of the things that comes to mind is this idea of, um, well, as you said, going inside yourself, and that can be daunting for some people. Um, but in fact, well, one of the other things that um, I want to mention, too, is that I've done some work on, for want of a better word, on personality. It's this idea that we have this ego, you know, our ego structure is really what carries us through this life. Like we have personality and our personalities, you know, develop for, you know, whatever reasons, probably some combination of genetics and uh, to a large extent, our experiences have shaped our personalities and our ego structure. And we rely on that to be able to get through from day to day. But it turns out our ego structures also get us into trouble. and if we don't settle down and stop and do some self-reflection and self-observations, we're not aware of these patterns that we're always going to um, that sometimes serve us well, but sometimes don't serve us so well. And they lead us to making 
mistakes, sometimes the same mistakes over and over again. So one of the other things that I've done that's been uh, really, all of these things have kind of really meshed together well for me is to, to study a model of personality that comes from ancient wisdom traditions. And a lot of people might have heard of something called the Enneagram. It's nine personality types. And I've been working with a group of other scientists, basically, in translating this ancient model into kind of contemporary psychological terms. We're actually writing a book about this now and trying to make this system accessible to psychotherapists in particular, but really anyone on a path of personal growth. And so the idea is basically that we do have this ego structure and a lot of times we're just not even really aware of it. We don't stop to observe. We don't even know what our habits of mind are. But with this system, what it does is it helps you to be able to see your patterns. And there are these nine kind of regular patterns. And most people that get into this can eventually identify with one of them. And for me, when I came to this, this system, and it took me a while, it took me maybe a year or so to kind of land in on one of these uh, uh, patterns to identify with it. But once I did, it was like an epiphany. It was like, oh my God, of course that's how I think. Like I, it was like, I didn't know that's how I thought. But once I realized it, it was like, I, I get it. I totally get it. So I got me and then I got everybody else. I could suddenly understand everybody else around me. And it just was a really interesting, powerful way of understanding human beings and our, our differences. So for me, that's also been interesting because it ties right in with the yoga and the yoga teachings. It's not really, yoga is not just about getting fit and fixing your knee. That's just where you start. <laughs> and what happens is then you start to go inside and if you travel you know, through all the eight limbs of yoga, you move from, well, the yamas and niyamas, you know, being a moral, decent person to start with, but then moving into asanas and then eventually being able to uh, control the breath and to regulate your breath and to bring your own senses inward, that takes some skill. Um, and then eventually you're led deeper and deeper and deeper inside until you, you know, eventually reach like a self-realization and you can actually meet, you know, what we could call the true self. We often distinguish, if I'm talking about ego and personality, we often refer to that as the, the self with a lowercase s, the little self or the small self. And then, but inside is this more permanent uh, big self with a capital S that some people might call it your soul or your pure consciousness. There's all kinds of different words that we use for that. But the whole point of yoga and meditation is to draw people inside and to be able to reach that abiding self. And, if, and the goal is to be able to avoid future suffering. And so that ego that we live with, that, that really runs the show most of the time, that ego can cause pain and suffering. 
you know, along the way. But if we learn to recognize it and kind of relax um, into it, um, and then sometimes away from it, you can start to have a little bit more control over your reactions to things and have a greater sense of calmness. So it's all, it's all just, these are all just various techniques to help a person get to know themselves, their body, their mind, how they work and how they react to things as a way to try to become a better human being. That darn you know, in the Buddha, in the Buddhist tradition, we're not, we're not even just trying to be better selves for ourselves, but we're trying to be better selves, you know, for the rest of the world. <laughs> right. And boy, do we need that? Don't we all need to be practicing some altruism and ahimsa, nonviolence in thought, word, and deed? Wouldn't that just go a long way? That would be, that's actually in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. We have these fixed perceptions of the people around us. We want them to be the same people that they've always been for us. And we don't give them the ability to become better versions of themselves. And sometimes that desire for people to remain as they were makes us angry, <laughs> which is obviously uh, not, not the greatest place to be. I had a question about, uh, or just to get your thoughts on the false self that, that we see uh, a lot of young people um, working very hard to build up um, because of the rise of, of digital interaction, social media, obviously. The, um, we've had this the discussion in some of our earlier salons about the, uh, the way that there was this dichotomy when uh, when the pandemic hit, and you know, physically these masks went up, but in in uh, you know, in many regards, the masks came off because a, a lot of the the images that that people want to project to those around them, and the concerns of of creating and curating a uh, I would say a wouldn't call it necessarily a false self, but an, an image of a projection a digital projection of the self rather than authenticity, um, you know, has, has certainly caused a, an enormous amount of stress. And, and of course, with the, uh, and I think it's, it's an interesting time now because you have uh, digital media being one of the only ways that people can truly kind of communicate and connect with each other, just like we are now. Um, but on the flip side, there's, you know, the importance of the projected identity is has become a little less important. I think I'm, we're seeing a bit of a societal shift as, as people look inward and look, you know, to sort of more, maybe we call a more organic priority. Just love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, it, I was also thinking, Julie, well, Julie, you talk very nicely in your, in your book, Left of Their Own Devices, about this uh, false self and how always looking at ourselves on Instagram and looking at other people and then trying to present an image of myself that I think looks good is definitely been a trend. But, you know, Julia also loved when you were talking about kind of this continuum, you know, you talked about it busy to bored to going through to something else. But, you know, we also kind of had this, um, you know, some social media, and it varies across generations, you know, and I was as guilty as anyone about using Facebook and Twitter to um, fill my time and procrastinate on things that I should be doing. But boy, then we went into lockdown 
and we really got into our social media, right? For a little while, it was like, oh, I got to connect. I got to see what's going on, you know, then, and then, and then for a lot of people, and I don't know, you know, I don't have any data to know for how many people this is true, but I know it's true for me and a lot of people I know, at some point we all just said enough. Like I'm so sick of looking at myself on the screen. Not that I don't love myself, but I, it was bringing me to always focusing on my appearance and how I look and, um, and being on Facebook, Twitter. It's like the information that comes to you is not what you've chosen. You're not in control of that necessarily. I mean, maybe a little bit, <laughs> but there's a lot of stuff that's coming at me and everyone that they're not really controlling. You know, and we've seen, I've seen the social dilemma. And so we kind of know how information is coming our way without our choice. You know, we're not really choosing it. So for me personally, I found at some point, I just shut down all those, all those channels. And I didn't quite delete my accounts, but I took them off my phone and I took them off my iPad so that I have to actively go on my computer and open up those apps to look at them. They're not just showing up with notifications. So it's kind of like, again, this continuum, you know, a little social media, a lot of social media. And now some people are kind of saying, maybe not so much. I, like I'm, I'm on overload. I need to get away from this. But it, it's also interesting that, you know, we do need the technology. We wouldn't be here doing this conversation together without this technology. I mean, I guess we could find other technologies to do it, but, you know, this has brought us together. So there have been some blessings of this technology and being able to bring people together. But again, going back to a class I took with Abhijata Iyengar, when it was that first Zoom yoga class with this amazing teacher in India, she said, you know, we've got this technology and it's bringing us here together to be able to do this class. But she said, you know, at some point though, you have to let the yoga technology take over. Like you have to get away from the devices and just go over in your corner and practice yoga. I know you said you had Dr. Eva on another episode and one of the things I recommended to her was don't sleep with your phone. Put your phone, you know, you always say that, put your phone in another room, but make a conscious effort. When you get out of bed in the morning, don't have the first thing you do be look at your phone, even to see what time it is, you know, have a clock or have a watch or something. If you need to know what time it is, but instead get over on your mat or your cushion and do a meditation, just even if it's five or 10 minutes, and I think, Julie, you've done this too. You've told me that you started doing pick up yoga. And first thing in the morning, instead of looking at the phone, Julie gets on her mat and she does a yoga practice. And I'll tell you what, it just sets, it resets my day. It, set, it resets my thinking. I feel more in control. I'm not, otherwise, if I pick up my phone, boy, it's, I'm on its leash and it's hard to get off of it. But if I start off with my practice, I'm more in control. So it does kind of get back to that idea of, of uh, increasing the control we have and, and not letting our devices control us. When you said that, Laura, I mean, and to the fellows and to our listeners, 
it made a big impact. I've been doing, Dr. Lauren and I did a series of lectures and talks for different audiences since this last year together, um, helping people find ways through this COVID moment. And, you know, she said that very thing. And I'm so glad she's saying that to our listeners and to us today, because I started doing that and the yoga and uh, my, I grew up with my mom watching Jack LaLanne doing yoga all the time. It's this organ music. His wife would play the organ. I could still hear that damn organ in my mind. But uh, she did that every day, but she was very fit. But uh, Dr. Laura said, you know, don't grab your phone, get on your mat. She said, when I do that, I feel so much more in control of my day. And, and, I, and I heard her and I started doing that. I've been watching that yoga by Adrian, who's on YouTube. And I'll tell you, it makes a huge difference in your life. And I think in these uncertain times, one thing is certain or sure. And that is if we feel like we don't have control over anything that can really send people on a mental health spiral downward. So that's why I've been trying to emphasize what can we control? What can we do to accentuate our wellness, both physical and mental during these challenging times? And that's why we're so thankful that you've been with us today, Dr. Laura, because you help to provide a way, a path forward to do that. And with talking about meditation and yoga in new ways. And again, it's a way that we can also get to know ourselves in new ways, which you've emphasized right along. And uh, it gives you that coping moment. You know, you can always, if you start feeling that anxiety, your breath and calming, you find ways to calm yourself down during these times. And I tell you what, when life throws these uncertain challenges at you, it's a toolkit that you can certainly turn to, and I have turned to, and I thank you for uh, reminding me to, to do that. Thanks, Julie. I, I know it's a wonderful, a wonderful thought to leave us with. Before we sign off, though, I would like to ask, uh, ask you, Dr. Laura, you are working on a book, and uh, I know it's, it's not out yet, but could you just share a little bit about, uh, about the book so that, um, so that our listeners can keep an eye out for it? Sure, I'd be happy to. So this is a book that is, um, I'm co-authoring this with four other people. Uh, one of them is actually deceased, David Daniels. So that's been a little tricky to try to co-author a book with someone who's no longer here in this world with us. But his daughter, Denise Daniels, and our good friend and colleague, Matt Killen, who used to work for the National Institutes of Health, and Dan Siegel, who's written a lot of books on uh, mindfulness. We've been writing a book that's translating the Enneagram into a kind of contemporary psychological terms. It's, as I mentioned, this, uh, for want of a better word, a personality model. That, but it's really the nuts and bolts of your personality. It's not just a test. It's something that you have to really work with and to try to identify your patterns. And so we've decided to write this book and orient it towards therapists. So the book is actually called Wholeness in Therapy. And the subtitle is The Ways That We Bring Patterns of Motivation, Emotion, and Attention to Clinical Work. And so it's been really interesting to work on that during the pandemic as well. But the book should come out sometime this year, hopefully. But it is uh, tying together really all the things that I've been working on in terms of uh, trying to find wholeness 
through your meditation, your yoga, and your self-observation. So it would give people tools for understanding their own patterns of thinking and feeling and behaving. Great. Well, we're looking forward to uh, hearing more about it when it when it comes out. And with that, I think we're, we're going to wrap up our conversation. We want to thank you once again for joining us, Dr. Laura Baker. And uh, I, I, Ed McGuire, uh, Julie Albright, and, and Brian Hayashi always appreciate you and, and all of our community members for contributing to the, the conversations that we have. For, for our listeners, please, if you like what we're doing, please leave a, leave a positive rating. Those, uh, we, we like those, those, the groovy feelings that it gives us, but it also, we, we look for feedback to help spread what we're doing to others because we really want to, we, we want those concentric circles of goodness to continue to spread. So uh, with that, uh, we thank everybody for joining us and listening to us and we will look to follow up again with more good stuff.